HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Two percent, two percent, two percent. The two percent's right over here. Oh, hey, Jenna. I didn't know you shopped here. Uh, yeah, anything to support local food, know what I mean? I definitely do. Though that's not the only thing you do in the name of Good Eats, obviously. Well, true. I also host Eating Matters every Wednesday at 5 p.m. where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. Be sure to tune in. All right, gotta get the plug in there. I get it. Yep, I'm hashtag shameless. You know what else you can do to support the local food community, right? Well, yeah. Make a donation to Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. That's right. And I gotta call you out on the whole local thing. What do you mean? Well, The Farm Report, A Taste of the Past, Japan Eats. Those are shows that take you around the country and the world. I'll give you that. So how can listeners give their support? It's pretty easy. Just go to heritageradionetwork.org and click on the big red heart in the top right corner. It's pretty easy from there. Thanks. Today's program is brought to you by the International Culinary Center, offering courses that range from classic French techniques in culinary, pastry, and bread baking to Italian studies to management, from culinary technology to food writing, from cake making to wine tasting. For more information, visit culinarycenter.com. Hey, what's up? This is Jack Inslee, host of Full Service Radio. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this show, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hey guys, it's Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio Network, and I'm your host, Kathy Arroway. Um, so it's June 12th. Um, it's a beautiful sunny day in Brooklyn here at uh, Heritage Radio Network's uh, headquarters at Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick. Um, however, I think it would be stupid to pretend that uh, it's not an extremely horrific day um, in, a, in the U.S. Um, you know, I'm Extremely distracted today, actually, because uh, like most of us, uh, I woke up to just about the worst news uh, I think I've ever seen. (laughs) Um, It's not funny. Uh, But uh, yeah, so, you know, last night uh, there was the worst shooting in uh, the worst mass shooting in U.S. history in Miami at a nightclub, a gay nightclub. And, uh, you know, we're we're uh, we were feeling the loss of 50 people there and, uh, you know, some 50 some others were wounded 
and uh, it's a, it's really rough. So how do you you know go on with your day? Um, you know, I'm sure there'll there'll be much to get angry about and much frustration to vent about. Uh, you know, some some of this uh, really criminal negligence on behalf of some some of our politicians. I would say criminal manipulation on behalf of certain industry groups. Uh, but for the meantime, um, it's just a really sad day in our history. And maybe it's a turning point, I hope, but we'll see. Um, I um, I have a wonderful guest on the show today. I've actually been waiting, looking forward to having this guy on the show for like a year. Um, and I'm actually really glad that we're not talking about like a sandwich book right now or something like a gluten-free or something. Um, instead, <laughs> I got a wonderful novelist whose first novel is called The Kitchens of the Great Midwest. It has been hailed as a really innovative novel and uh it's been quoted as a big-hearted funny and class transcending pleasure and a structural and empathetic tour de force so the author is jay ryan straddle and i've got him on the line right now jay how are you or jay ryan hi <laughs> hi oh, I'm, well I'm, I'm 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 glad you brought up the news of the day i'm pretty sad yeah, and I know that you're on a really busy tour right now too. So you've been traveling for the paperback publication of this book. Um, yeah, you know, talk after talk at bookstore. So I imagine you are dealing with you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I... I'm pretty tired too, but I'm hanging in there. It's a mm -hmm. you know it's a good problem to have. Uh, today's a three city day. I woke up. Oh my god. Today in uh, San Antonio, and right now I'm in St. Louis, and I'll end the day in Minneapolis. <laughs> wow. I'm curious, yeah. are you going to address the tragedy um, at all in some of your bookstore talks or meet and greets? Uh, I'm at, yeah. 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 I, I, after I get off the phone uh, with you today, I'll, I'll think about how to do that. Um, mm -hmm. I, certainly whenever people get in public, you know, for any reason, you know, it's hard to ignore what's on our minds. And, mm -hmm. and I think talking uh, about uh, tragedies like what happened in Orlando amongst each other in person is really important. Mm -hmm. uh, and not just, you know, being at home on your computer, on your phone and retweeting, yeah. you know, uh, but actually going out and talking to people face to face is pretty, pretty uh, crucial. So um, I probably will. Yes. Yeah. yeah and imagine it's, it's a, it's a hard challenge, but it's also, I feel like there's a, especially from a novelist there, do you feel a responsibility to kind of, um, be really real in front of you know your your fans and um, you know because people are reading your work and they want to get to know you and uh, and you got to mm. represent you know who you are yeah absolutely yeah and you know as, as you implied earlier there's a, a show must go on element to mm -hmm. every other aspect of life and all of our lives that um, and and yeah and I do have an obligation to the people who, who you know, been waiting to meet me or <laughs> my book and wanted to want to want to talk with me about that. Um, mm -hmm. <clears throat> so yeah, it's just you know, and in days like this, it's um, you know, it's a it's unfortunate we live in you know a country where uh, we have to consistently find that balance between you know getting on with our lives uh, in a constructive way and balancing that against how we really feel yes. in a moment like this. Absolutely, I really appreciate you sharing that. Um, you know, I, I actually, I mean, sort of going on that tangent, as a novelist, do you feel like it's part of your um, work or, or part of your goal to to reflect the times and the challenges and uh, the most important issues of our time? Is that something that you try to try to do in your work? 
as a writer? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, all the time. All the time I think about what I'm writing as it relates to what I want to see in the world or areas mm -hmm. I see of improvement. Yeah. And, and, you know, sometimes it's more, you know, it's more, it's obviously more lighthearted, like a lot of the content of Kitchens of the Great Midwest was simply about how I've seen the, you know, our relationship to food evolve over the last 30 years. Uh, but I certainly get into, you know, issues of class uh, yeah. in particular in that book, and I think uh, as well in my next book as well in terms cool. of seeing just how, how, how people are living as, re as it relates to what they eat. You know, what can people afford to eat? What, can, what do people have access to? I, mean, I think about that kind of thing all the time. I mean, I volunteer with kids in Los Angeles, and I have for 11 years, and, uh, you know, I think a lot about what they, you know, as I drive to their public schools, I take a look at what stores, you know, um, restaurants, uh, uh, liquor shops, grocery yeah. stores are, are in the proximity of their schools and just what they have, the kind of food they have access to on foot or by bicycle vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, what the more privileged parts of Los Angeles have. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I look at that every day. But in terms of my writing, I, I think about, yeah, yeah, the issues that affect me. I mean, I, I, I will have to say that I don't. I try not to be a dogmatic writer. Mm -hmm. I try not to sit down and have an argument and sit down. I'm going to and sit down and attempt to tell my reader that um, here, here I've got something you should believe in, or I'm going to try to convince you of a of, of something. Right. Rather, I sit down with questions and mm -hmm. I try to figure out uh, solutions or unpack the complexities behind the questions through fictional characters by maybe having fictional characters occupy some corner of a dilemma that's been puzzling me. Hmm. So. Yeah, I don't think that your book is dogmatic at all. <laughs> and, and nothing mm. nothing against that. I mean, we've had plenty oh, of dogmatic right. <laughs> books on this show, and bring it on. I love it. But, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. I and I imagine you do have quite a few guests who, who have really strong opinions oh, my one way or another. We're having Joel Salatin <laughs> yeah. coming up here soon. Yeah, it'll be great. Um, yeah. So uh, that's really interesting. I'm curious what your relationship is with food. Um, uh, you know, uh, you're not a chef. Um, no. Like your main character, Eva Thorvald, um, becomes in this book. And uh, so just a little background for those who haven't read it, this book sort of circles around her life um, in a really interesting way, um, going through different characters' uh, first uh, or perspectives. And uh, she... You know, is raised from very humble beginnings to become a, a really acclaimed chef in the Midwest. So, um, yeah. So you're not a chef. How did you decide to to choose this? Uh, I don't know this focus. Wow. Well, there are a lot of reasons for it. Uh, one of the main reasons, and one that one that keeps coming up, also when people ask me why a female chef is mm -hmm. that uh, uh, the two chefs I know the best, uh, and two of my best friends are women named Patty Clark and Amy Schabert Kovacs, and I thought about them a lot when writing the book. I pestered them for information. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> I stayed over at Amy's house and woke up with her in the morning and watched her uh, watched her make the you know breakfast for her family and mm -hmm. also watch her work on cakes and um, baked goods for clients. She's a baker. Wow! And talk about how her job has evolved. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, she's she's my age. I mean, I'm 40, and and it's uh, the job of a baker has become a lot more complex. Uh, they've had to become a lot more versatile, <laughs> really? as uh, yeah, yeah, as, as as their customer base has evolved into, um, uh, you know, what we know now, what we know now, like a you know, vegan cupcakes, you know, um, <laughs> gluten free, uh, uh, yeah, 
uh, you know, gluten-free uh, desserts uh, across the board, and, and, that, and that's just the tip of it. Um, mm-hmm. Aside from that, also, you know, an emphasis on on on, on local provenance, um, you know, using things in season, and so yeah, especially in a place like Minnesota where it's changed so much. I mean, I mean, I don't know if you've been to Minneapolis lately, but it's very, it's got a really wonderful uh, uh, restaurant and farmers market uh, yeah. environment, but. Boy, the the Minnesota I was born in in 1975 is quite different from the one I see now in a lot of in a lot of those ways. And so, I really set out to write a book that set to track that evolution. You know, through the uh, through concentrating on one character, through you know who embodied that evolution, who was born in Minnesota in the late 80s and becomes a pop-up supper club magnet. Right. Yeah. yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, there has been a sort of gourmet or restaurant um, uh, boom throughout the throughout most U.S. cities, I think, in the last couple of decades. And um, I'm I'm actually this book was actually exotic to me because I'm from the East Coast and I don't really know much about Midwest. So mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, learning yeah. about Lutefisk to to the various different bars that uh, you know, I thought bars was a place where you go to drink, but um, <laughs> little did I know <laughs> it's huge source of pride right. in the Midwest. It was actually really fascinating, and um, uh, you know, this book is being also described as a sort of love note to the foods of the Midwest um, yeah. that you capture throughout, you know, evolving throughout time. So I, I thought that was that was really wonderful because I, I don't know if this is like sort of also in response to this, but I mean, and I apologize, but my understanding of Midwestern food was like casseroles and not not so great food, <laughs> not <laughs> not too good stuff. Canned yeah, food. right. I don't know. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Comfort food and mm-hmm. you know combinations of meat and dairy in different proportions. You know, sometimes Jeez. Jell- yeah. Jello and various vegetables and fruits and mm-hmm. dairy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and that was very much the world I I was born into and grew up in and. And yeah, I think that that's still it. Like when I think of um, a typical Minnesota dish, I still think of things like tater tot hot dish. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know things where cream mushroom soup is an ingredient. You know, mm-hmm. I, I can't. Rem- I was talking with someone yesterday, and I said I couldn't remember ever having cream of mushroom soup. Like we had around the house to add to things. Same with right, same with yeah. the Lipton onion soup mix. <laughs> I've never had you never Lipton onion water. soup in my yeah. life, and nor do I know anyone who's had it. It's, it's, it's an ingredient. <laughs> it's, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, that's really yeah. funny. Well, what is okay? So the first chapter and each chapter, I love this, um, centers around a different food. So there's mm-hmm. like uh, sweet pepper jelly. There's the bars that we talked about, and um, yeah. the first one, I really, I really was intrigued by it. It's lutefisk. I don't know yeah. if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Oh yeah, but, sure. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, the Swedes sometimes say lutefisk. They leave okay. out the e. Lutefisk. At least the Swedish cookbook I have at home leaves out the e, and the mm-hmm. I think Norwegians are more likely to call it lutefisk. But who knows? Uh, uh, I'd say it's a little subjective. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, but I but for the purposes of this, I was in with a with a Norwegian uh, uh, um, lutefisk maker, and as as was my great grandfather, he was Norwegian. He called it lutefisk. So I'm. Mm-hmm. Sticking to that story, mm-hmm. and yeah, it's it's disgusting. I I'm not a fan. <laughs> uh, out of all the types of food research I did for this book, that was the one I can honestly call unpleasant. It, I think I describe it in the book as uh, looking like jellied smog and smelling like boiled aquarium water, and He's, that's not. Yeah, at one point the, you said it was snot colored like white fish or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, know. yeah. Lye is involved. It's, it's 
treat him yeah. by. Uh, yeah, a family member told me that lutefisk uh, came to be so the Norwegians would have something to eat in the winter that right. the dogs wouldn't eat. Right. You know? Well, I'm <laughs> wondering <laughs> now, because pres- preservation and, you know, t- traditional methods of preserving just about everything is coming back yeah. in a big way in uh, yeah. the food yeah. scene. So I'm wondering if lutefisk is making a comeback. Maybe, maybe I wouldn't mind seeing some, yeah. you know, modern artisanal lutefisk. There was a, uh, a Mexican American chef in Chicago who hosted a pop-up supper club based on my book, and he he made a Aww. run at lutefisk that was the best lutefisk I've ever had. He made it himself, but it was a modern variant on it. It wasn't the traditional, huh. you know, jellied pond scum. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, How it, bad it's can one of those uh, great um, culinary tradition specific mm-hmm. to a certain culture right. that becomes kind of part and parcel of enforcement of that culture. I mean, a lot of cultures have something like this, have some sort of disgusting food that usually doesn't leave, you know, the confines of that mm-hmm. that culture's table, you know. But So I don't think lutefisk is going to catch on too much, but who knows? <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm very intrigued. I would like to try this. And uh, I, I loved how, um, you know, your character in the beginning of the book, Lars, a uh, chef, mm. he, he describes it as uh, when he, he actually tries to, he, so he purchases this um, as a grown up. His parents made him yeah. work in the Lutefisk, uh, you know, helping out, um, you know, t- to manufacture this stuff. And he hated it from yeah. then and then never, never looked, you know, back at it until later on he buys it for a Christmas dinner that he's hoping to kind of bring it out as a sort of joke. Yeah, And right. um, it was very touching. And, uh, you know, I don't want to give away too much about the book, but he never quite does that. And yeah. um, I'm, I'm always sort of mournful for that. I'm curious, you know, to see what would happen if, uh, you know, somebody who hated with a passion this, this fish, you know, tried it again much later and, and what the experience would be like. Um, yeah, that's just one moment. There's so many moments throughout this book, though, that leave me just kind of wondering and hoping for, like, another taste of something. And uh, that's mm. a really broad way of putting it. But, um, um, like, for instance, uh, I, I reread the end of the book over on this, my subway ride over, and um, it just... It's such a wonderful climax um, that like really builds. So there's this memorable feast at the end that um, I'm. I, it made me think for a moment. Um, have you seen the film Babette's Feast? Yeah, yeah, a while ago. Yeah, yeah and 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 uh, my book's been compared to that mm-hmm, in some mm-hmm. aspects. Yeah, yeah. I was I wondering like that. about that. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, because there's it's an emotional feast as much as um, mm-hmm. by that point because we know so many so much about the characters. And so the richness of the meal is um, beautifully transcribed or translated through the food as well as the, the goings-on with the characters. So, um, yeah, I just I just needed to, like, taste everything, <laughs> like, really badly. So, <laughs> yeah, thanks so much. I guess, I guess we skipped ahead here a bit. Um, hey, no problem. No problem. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so um, I wanted to also discuss... Um, a few a couple months ago, we had a panel that I helped moderate um, on food and fiction at the Food Book Fair, and I remember I wanted you to get the, on this panel, but you couldn't make it. And then, you know, um, it, it was in Brooklyn. But anyway, um, you're you were mentioned in this panel, um, mm. 
It, we were we were uh, exploring. We had you know uh, a few great authors. We had um, Sweet Bitter, Jess, Jessica Danler, yeah, and no Jennifer, sorry Stephanie Danler and um, Jessica Tom of Food Horror. And uh, we were discussing you know are we seeing um, a sort of food focused fiction genre uh, building? Mm. Um, yeah, I'm curious if you were inspired uh, by any other books along these lines or. or if you see that happening now in the aftermath of, I don't know, the last few years? Wow, I think it could. I mean, I mean, this is an evolving part of culture. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, well, just in the last six, seven years, and I'm just going to pick on one thing here, I've seen such a spike in, in craft distilleries. Mm-hmm. You know, to say nothing about like, like the last 15 years of craft brewing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it, it seems difficult to live in a world that is perceptively evolving in terms of what we eat and drink. I mean, because we have to eat and drink every day. We participate in this, whether if we stick to, you know, patterns or if we are, are adventurous and we go out and we seek out new things. I mean, mm-hmm. these new things will exist whether or not we uh, participate in them. Yeah, and that's they're, true. they're part of our environment. They're, they're part of our evolving downtown areas and warehouse districts and, and outlying areas. And, and they're seeking to use things like. Well, like I just went to a distillery in Paso Robles that uses Sagne from, you know, uh, you know, leftover grape juice from, from wine production that was going to be thrown out otherwise. And now it's being distilled and made into vodka and gin. Cool. Um, yeah. And, yeah, and I think, I think this kind of stuff is wonderful. And, I, and, and living in this world, I'm compelled to write about this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, partially because, uh, well, I'm sure other people are writing about particularly in nonfiction. But in, but in fiction, I mean, fiction to me is an exercise in, in comprehension. You know, in, in empathy, we're trying to understand how how other people feel, and we're trying to understand this world that we live in as it changes faster than our ability to comprehend it. And one of yeah, one of those aspects of of evolution is is our relationship to food and drink, and and um, our choices in that in that regard. And yeah, no, I I I personally you know couldn't see it any other way. I. That said, uh, hmm. in terms of contemporary fiction, I don't personally know a lot of authors who explicitly write about food mm-hmm. or who make it a primary focus. It certainly shows up in some writing. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I see it in the writing of like, you know, people like Amelia Gray, for example, um, you know, or, 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 or like Mo Yan, like his book mm. Pow. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, a, <laughs> if you want to call that a food novel, it's pretty <laughs> exciting. Uh, I, I, I guess I consider it. I, I put it on a list of like my top ten favorite food books last year. Oh, um, great. Um, but, but yeah, it seems when people think of food fiction, they often have to go back a ways. They go back to, um, um, oh, um, oh, of course, yeah. Now I'm destroying a blank. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, uh, what was that? What was that extremely influential book I read in high school? It changed my life. Uh, um, the Catcher in the Rye. Oh no 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 no! Kill a uh, it, it, it had recipes. Uh, it had recipes in it. Uh, like every, oh oh yeah, like Water for Chocolate. I'm sorry. Yeah, ah. How could I forget that? Cool. Um, but yeah, I mean, I also perceive it in the writings of people who don't necessarily concentrate on food. You know, people mm-hmm. like uh, Ben Catcher. He's a graphic novelist. Lives in Brooklyn. I lo- absolutely love his work. I'd say a good quarter of it takes place in the in in some aspect of food community. He used mm-hmm. to run a strip called Hotel and Farm, which was often quite explicitly about restaurants and restaurant practices. And I absolutely loved his examination of, of both the urban and rural food experience and how people experience it on the street. Hmm. Uh, and that was influential on me for sure. Um, but, yeah, I, I feel like um, 
I'd, I'd like to get okay. to know more people who are who are actively writing about yeah. food as a primary focus in their fiction. Well, thanks so much for sharing some of your inspirations and, and uh, you know, your interest in this genre. I hope that uh, I'm definitely interested in checking some of those out. Um, oh, sure. We're going to cut to a quick little commercial interlude, though, and be right back, Chad Moore. Culinary Center is a proud sponsor of the HeritageRadioNetwork.org. The ICC, with locations in New York and California, provide cutting-edge education to future chefs, restaurateurs, and wine professionals. We're proud to claim Dan Barber, Bobby Flay, and David Chang among our honored alumni. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton from Chef Story. Check out our ICC website at InternationalCulinaryCenter.com. All right, we're back chatting with author J. Ryan Straddle, whose first book is called The Kitchens of the Great Midwest. Um, thanks so much for joining us on your tour of this book. Um, so we were just talking about some inspirations, um, some inspiring you know, books around food and, uh, I guess, literature and <laughs> <laughs> fiction yeah. um, on this topic. And, uh, you know, one question I asked that panel that I would love to ask you, if um, let's just pretend we're there <laughs> back in time. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, are there any literary moments that really jump out in your in your memory for the depiction of food that was just so telling of a certain character or a certain um, like situation oh. in the book? Oh, wow. That's such mm-hmm. a great question. Um, <clears throat> well, yeah, I. You know, I keep thinking of nonfiction. I keep thinking mm-hmm. of, like, you know, MFK Fisher and oh, cool. stuff like that. Yeah, um, but, I, but I really want to think of a of, of a fiction example, so I may have to table it and sort okay. of have that in the back of my mind. <laughs> so I don't, you know, take up too much black hair time yeah, pondering. Yeah, no, no problem. Wow, that's such a great question. Yeah, you know, I, I think that there's a lot you can say through food, obviously, as you've shown in your book. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So. Um, yeah, actually, let's talk more about that. Um, you mentioned, you know, you really want to explore uh, class um, and food. And I'm curious, you know, what you think about the current uh, state of the you know, restaurant industry or the food industry as you see it right now. Um, you know, a lot of the I think the buzz around food and when we talk about food um, is it's, uh, you know, high high end restaurant. There's sort of a luxury and that's yeah. nothing new. I hope that's changing actually a bit. But um, is that something that you wanted to explore in this book, um, showing the, you know, the contrast between high and low? Yeah, yeah, and I do sort of explore it in the bars chapter um, <laughs> in terms of uh, uh, one character's alienation with, um, I think, some of the more extreme expressions of the world or, or, or what she considers to be extreme and, and beyond the realm of her, you know, comprehension. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think at times, yeah. just, like with any, just like with any movement, there are, 
there are um, aspects of it that can seem alienating to outsiders. Yeah. And I think we have to be careful to not make healthy eating alienating. <laughs> mm-hmm. One thing I was thinking about in that chapter was, you know, in today's really fast-moving food culture, everyone's, like, picking up the latest trend and, and uh, trying to, you know, translate their favorite restaurant or chef chef made dishes in their own kitchens and so forth mm. was that pat um in that in that chapter like said she's been making the same bars for 25 years and i love yeah. that um you know that idea of passing and and really honing this classic in your kitchen and not really messing with it and making it yours and uh you know not moving on to the latest chipotle bar or something like that yeah uh, yeah uh, crazy little uh you know yuzu grapefruit something cherimoya rind yeah right and that's right. how we create these these tr- pith these I, guess I should say pith yeah cherimoya pith sounds more realistic but uh yeah yeah i yeah. i grew up in a house where yeah my grandmother back in minnesota still makes the, the same recipes wow. uh, including yeah, some of the ones i pulled um uh you know it was her book i used <laughs> as a as a starting point uh mm-hmm. for the recipes that are um written about in past chapter and in the Ludifus chapter, like the chicken wild rice casserole. And I think there was some discussion over whether to call it a hot dish uh, <laughs> uh, with, a, with a nod towards, you know, the regionalism of that phrase. And ultimately I acquiesced and called it a casserole. <laughs> yeah. Um, even though it sounds funny for me to think about chicken wild rice casserole. Oh, boy, that sounds weird. It sounds weird to say. Uh, but, yeah, I, I, I love it, and I'm glad that, some of these recipes can survive, um, mm-hmm. even if um, it might seem kind of strange or even gross by today's standards. And certainly, I at the top of our conversation, I referred to you know some of the um, standards, you know, mm-hmm. some of the traditional uh, Midwestern dishes, yeah. mm-hmm. so, you know, kind of a novelty and kind of you know bizarre by today's standards in terms of what they what they were attempting to do. And certainly, you know, having been born in 1975, what I would consider to be the apex of the better living through chemistry era, I think there's a, there's a lot to improve upon, you know, right. <laughs> uh, when you look at recipes from that era in terms of where we were at and our comprehension of uh, <laughs> physiology and <laughs> yeah. uh, as it relates to um, our diet. And, yeah. exact, and also, also we were evolving from, we're still heavily evolving in that region from being an agrarian culture to being an urban, you know, more sedentary culture. And so the idea of having a, like a 4,000 calorie lunch, mm-hmm. you know, wasn't that scary if you were going to go out and work in the fields for six hours. And, and certainly, you know, perhaps the idea of having a, you know, two huge slabs of chicken and chicken wild rice casserole for lunch, and then you sit down at a desk for the next six hours. Is, Oops. You know, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> well, a little more problematic. So, so, mm-hmm. so I think these things will evolve, and perhaps we'll see some healthier variations on a theme. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but, but, you know, they're, they're comfort food to many people my age. I've I, I've, I've been invited to, I haven't been able to attend hot dish parties in Los Angeles where, where people unironically oh make gosh. these dishes. Yeah, yeah. right. Uh, yeah. I would love to check that out. Um, yeah. Actually, this is like a side, uh, totally unrelated question, but um, I'm aware that, you know, in the mid, certain parts of the Midwest and, and also particularly Minnesota, there is like a, a dessert salad trend, like so like cookie salad and like... Oh. And, and typically things that are cold are just called a salad, even if yeah. they're not vegetable-based. Yeah. 
Yeah, I know. I think I've had to define it as such in the uh-huh. past. And any admixture of food right. served cold is a salad. Right, right. Yeah, right. it may or may not contain vegetables at all. That that quaint and circumscribed notion of the word salad, mm-hmm. you know, is is a modern invention by, by Midwestern standards. Yeah, no. Quite often, I was given salads as a kid that combinations of meat and dairy. Yeah, wow. know, served cold or yeah, or marshmallows and nuts and canned fruit cocktail and coconut like shaved coconut and maybe raisins yeah all kinds of (laughs) yeah maybe we'll hear about this in the next book actually uh, yeah hopefully yeah Uh, i think i think at least one of them does get brought up and another thing i bring up in the Mm -hmm. next book that gets short shrift in a book called kitchens of the great midwest is rhubarb Mm. Uh, it just didn't work out in terms of the timing the wait what about rhubarb yeah yeah kitchens takes place mostly in the late summer and early fall which is certainly Mm. not rhubarb season so uh, I took advantage of some of the months in which narrative falls in my next book to uh, spend a little time with rhubarb. Cool. <laughs> and, and, and give it a fair shake. We're loving it, rhubarb right now. What's the season for it? So. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it, it, it's coming to it on its own. And, and, this is, and that's what I remember about Minnesota in, uh, in the late spring was, was rhubarb. Oh, we'd cool. Get, yeah, we'd get rhubarb. And sometimes, yeah, rhubarb, you know, sometimes... Straight, sometimes if you're bold, straight up, but usually cut with something sweet. Uh-huh. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah, it's yeah, and and I remember as a kid sometimes being given, you know, um, hopefully at least one of your listeners remembers something like this too. So I know I'm not crazy, but uh, like a baggie full of sugar okay. with with sticks of rhubarb to dip in it, uh-huh. kind of like a lickamade, you know, and that was our was our snack, you know, <laughs> in second grade. We're like. Little baggies of sugar with rhubarb sticks to dip them into. That sounds great. That does sound like those little, like, um, I don't know, those little, like, candies. But uh, I I did, you know, put out a call for rhubarb suggestions, and somebody did suggest uh, recently to me just sticking in sugar and eating it raw, which was totally new to me. But uh, that's, that's... Yeah, I, mean, I got to try that, actually. Um, so yeah. tell us, could you share a little uh, sneak peek into your next book and uh, mm. when it's coming well, out? Or we well, know? what I can say about it right now, I mean, right now um, I have seven people reading the first draft. So I think it will mm-hmm. change a lot. I'm hesitant to say too much out of fear that I'll be completely wrong. Um, <laughs> so you're done with the first now, draft. Congrats. I think, I think what will probably stay the same, or what I set out to do was tell a Kind of multi generational family epics in the Midwest, or Wonderful. small epic, like mm-hmm. a, a muted saga of a of a working class family in southern Minnesota over four generations. Sounds and, wonderful. Uh, yeah, I, it's it, I tackle a lot of things uh, there that I wasn't able to get to in as much depth in kitchens. I mm-hmm. sort of felt like I'd left a lot of stones unturned in writing kitchens, and I had a lot more mm-hmm. to say about the region I grew up in and the people I grew up around. Uh, and I absolutely love them. Uh, I think you had mentioned earlier that someone had quoted this book as being a love letter to the you know, food of the Midwest. Right. And, and that's what it feels like to me. That's what I set out to do. And I'm not done mm-hmm. expressing my uh, adoration for the culture and people of my, of my homeland. That's and terrific. I, yeah. uh, will we see any of the same characters? Maybe make oh, a cameo? Uh, yeah, yeah. Right now, Pat Prager is a minor character cool. in the second book. Uh, as of right now, um, her mother and her niece and nephew are primary characters. So, yeah, we'll see if that changes. Oh, but that's I, great. Uh, the spine of the book, as it's written now, is Pat Prager's family. Uh, ah, so, gotcha. Yeah. So a lot she more. Was a char- 
Yeah, and she was a character that as I was writing her, I thought, I can keep going. Mm-hmm. I could write about her all day. And so I, I listened to that uh, inclination when I sat down to write this book. Like, who are the kind of people I want to write about? How do I want to write about them? And so it's a, kind of a continuation of the tone of the Pat Prager chapter in a lot of ways. That's very cool. Um, really looking forward to that. Um, I guess that's about all the time we have for today, but um, I can't wait to, to stick my teeth into the next chapter or novel, I guess I should say. And um, thank uh, really, thank you so much, Jay Ryan, for taking the time uh, out of your busy day to, to speak with us. Uh, sure. Yeah. And, and once again, yeah, to, to an- finally answer mm-hmm. your old question, the. Uh, I'd say the one thing that really stands out to me uh, in terms of oh, food writing and, and fiction, yeah, 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 was a was a piece of Ben Catcher's. I've got to refer to him again. Okay, called the Breakfast Special, uh-huh. where he has characters puzzle over how can a breakfast special in New York cost a dollar twenty nine. Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> and his characters kind of do do uh, 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 muse forensically on the on on how a breakfast special can. Can, can be so cheap yeah. in a city like that. It's a really anyway. good question. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, and I absolutely loved it. Yeah, um, but but yeah, in any case, sure. uh, um, yeah, I'll, I'll mm-hmm. have to stop there, so I'm sorry. Okay. But I just had to get that in. No, yeah. absolutely. Definitely, we'll have to check that out, Ben Catcher. And, um, yeah. all right, everyone, um, hopefully you can check out Kitchens of the Great Midwest now out in paperback from Viking. And thank you again, Jay Ryan. And hey, you're uh, welcome. Hey, thanks everyone at Heritage. We'll see you next week on Eat Your Words. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.